Welcome to another episode of Becoming DO. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's get into it. Oh, can you hear me? No? Yes, can you hear me? Oh yeah, okay. Good. <laughs> okay. I was I was a bit like worried if it don't work, but it is working now, so that's good. Mm-hmm. All right. So how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm awesome. You know, it's been a, a while since you actually spoke you know, since you left for your rotation sweater. It's been <laughs> this week caught up though. Well welcome though. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to hear your voice. All right. So I think today, basically, I just wanted us to talk about uh, like minorities in medicine, specifically like Hispanic, uh, Latinx community. I just wanted to be like clarified though, like it's the preference Latinx or Hispanic? I think that'll depend on who you talk to. Um, mm-hmm. So the the difference between a Hispanic and a Latino or Hispanic and a Latina um, is kind of like where they come from. So. Hispanic kind of encompasses Spain and Latin is more so like Latin American countries. Um, so for example, my parents are from Cuba. Um, that would be Latin, not Hispanic. Uh, okay. Okay. Now that makes sense. Then. So you, that would be more Latin than Hispanic. And I guess the majority of uh, medical students in the U.S. or so majority of people in the U.S. would be more of Latin than Hispanic. Would you say? Correct. Okay. Correct. But that, but but that's a big identity piece, and so uh, some people have always identified as Hispanic. And who am I to tell them that they're not Hispanic because they're not from Spain? Right. Um, but yes, that's kind of like generally where the distinction is. Like technically, um, people from Brazil are Latin, even though they're not like Spanish speaking. They're usually Portuguese speaking. Okay, well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so I just wanted to start by like asking if or why exactly you chose to pursue career medicine. Oh, that is a great question. <laughs> um, I feel like there was probably a external factor as well as an internal factor. I mean, growing up. Uh, my parents were immigrants. Um, and then when I was growing up, I always received messages of, you know, this is going to, this is the first American in the family. He's going to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, he's going to be successful. He's going to do great things. Um, and so from an early age, doctor, lawyer was like the acceptable careers. Um, and then when I was in school, I quickly ruled out <laughs> law. I was never interested in, in, in that kind of branch, but I was good in science and math and I wanted to help people. That's the typical, you know, uh, thing. And then um, around high school, I actually tried to not do medicine. Um, I tried getting into, you know, drama, visual arts and stuff like that. Um, But I kept coming back to science and medicine. And then in college that kind of, I kind of went on a track that was full medicine. Yeah, stuck to it. Oh, that's that's really cool, and you'll be like the first first generation medicine, right, in your family? Yes, first generation to graduate from college, first generation to be a doctor here and everything. Yeah. Okay, 
And I was I was gonna ask because usually this is something that I I've been thinking about too. Because like you know how like I would say like stereotype, but usually when people like in high school and trying to choose a career and trying to pick what they want to be in the future, like oh I want to be like a doctor, lawyer, like NBA star, like. For most mm-hmm. cultural groups or like for most races, it seems that like let's say like for or for black person being black, you can see like if you if you grow up in like depending on where you grew up, you could ever wanna be pursue a professional career or you could wanna push pursue more sports like basketball, football, mm-hmm. like music and stuff. And that is what you usually see in terms of like successful people. You have your LeBrons, you know. You can name yeah. countless like basketball players, countless um, football or uh, black players, but not not so much like you know professional like doctors or lawyers. You don't they don't see a lot of those. You know, for so for mm-hmm. you as a or or Latina, like what was the image for you in terms of like this is what you aspire to be? Or what do you think is usually the image for most Latinas in the community? Oh, that's a great question. Um, for me, I mean, my experience might be—I don't want to say my experience is different because you know, I, I don't feel like I'm unique. But um, when I was growing up, my since I was the first to be born here, and I again kept hearing those messages of like, "Oh, this one, this—you know—he's going to be the one that like you know does great things," or. I was always, it was more so pressure to actually do something or pressure to, yeah, pressure to be something professional. Um, Even though what I was seeing in television was not like Hispanic doctors or anything like that. It was more so my family that would say like, you you know, you you do good in school. Like you're the gringo, which means like the American of the family. Like you're, you know, what do you mean? You're getting a B in English. Like you speak English. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know if that answers your question. Um, I think to to a degree it does, but like, what do you think most uh, people outside of yourself, let's say your friends and stuff, mm-hmm. what they usually see in terms of like, okay, this is what they tend to gravitate towards in terms of like career wise, mm-hmm. you know, like the stereotypical career for like someone in the Latinx community. What do you think it usually is? A lot of times, uh, people in the Latin community gravitate towards whatever their parents do. Um, And I don't think this is unique to the Latin community, but it's accentuated, I I would say, because, you know, it's expected that whoever you are, you're going to continue the family tradition or continue the family business if they have a family business or or, um, do what your parents did. Um, So, yeah. I think that makes sense. I think for a lot of people, like... um, I don't know what the stats is, but I think somebody came out like how like about like half of the people in medical school have parents who are in medicine, you know, because that's what right. this, that's what you you're trying to imitate and stuff. But right. knowing how your journey has been to where you're at, could you um, tell us if how how it was like coming to where you are in like med school and what roadblocks you you were able to like get over and what roadblocks you think most people that especially most uh, latinas that want to get to this point you're at what roadblocks do you think that like affects them to get to where they want to be in terms of your position 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, some of my roadblocks um, included the fact that nobody before me had done it before, at least not in this country. Um, so when the time came to apply to college, like we, you know, we didn't know anything about um, funding college. My parents did not have a, those plans that, you know, some people that were born here have from, you know, the a very early age that pays for college. Right. Um, so when I was in high school, uh, looking into college, I had to do a lot of that work myself and there was <laughs> no prior plan, um, asking a lot of questions, relying on a lot of different people, um, that had done it before being, um, I guess humble and like who you, everybody that, you know, asking anybody and everybody for help. Um, <clears throat> then once college actually came, um, again, still the, it's a new experience. Um, mentorship was important there. Um, a lot of people that go to college might've had, I don't know, tutors or you know, someone ahead of them to tell them like, Hey, you know, you should live on campus because this is and that. Uh, and with me, it was a lot of figuring it out as you go. Um, so in terms of like the uh, application process for medical school, like uh, mm -hmm. taking the, you know, the whole process, like I, well, I think one of the biggest thing a lot of people don't usually mention is how expensive it is paying oh, yes. the application. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. I, I was kind of rambling, but absolutely every step of the process costs money. Even applying, you know, from applying to colleges in high school, once you decide that you want to do medicine, there's, you know, all these costly steps. Like you need to take a MCAT and that costs money to register, costs money to even move the date. Uh, you need to prepare for the MCAT. Some people, you know, take those MCAT prep courses. Then you need to apply to the universities, uh, you know, the colleges, the medical schools, and each one costs money. Uh, just to receive your essay costs money. <laughs> so that was a big thing for me too. That was very uh, prohibitive and it might be prohibitive for other people. Right. Um, I think I think that makes sense. I think that's what I was also thinking about how mm -hmm. that's for some people, like if you're not fortunate enough to have uh, um, the funding or like, I know some people that had to like work while doing like high school to save money up for like having to apply for medical school or people that they are, some people are looking at their parents have to pay for it. But if if you grow up in a family where like socioeconomical status is not really like very low and like you guys are struggling, like how does one expect? I think this is something like the AMC needs to look at. I think they do offer like funding and they offer like scholarships and stuff, but they need to think about mm. the cost of just applying to medical school, you know? And yes, yes. How expensive the, the MCAT is, how expensive applying to schools are. And also to think about how, like, it's even once you apply and then you have to start traveling for all the interviews and stuff, you know, like having to buy plane tickets to go to places to interview for the medical school. It's the whole journey is just very, very, very expensive. Oh, absolutely. And then, um, Go ahead. I think when you when you eventually then get into medical school, the cost then of the medical school is now astronomical. <laughs> it's it's you 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 have to like I don't know, except if you're you're you obviously very fortunate in terms of that your parents are like saved, you know, 
to fund your medical school, you have to go into debt to become a medical doctor in, in the US. Yes. Yes. And for a lot of people, it's, it's, I don't know if they see, if they know that. I don't know how many people actually know how much debt you go into to become a medical doctor in the US. A substantial amount, a substantial amount. Um, yeah, and I, for me, like, kind of like I was saying, um, college and medical school, well, college, I don't know about, not necessarily medical school, college was always expected of me um, in terms of my parents and my family. Uh, <laughs> how to pay for it wasn't <laughs> like nobody knew how we were going to pay for it. They're like, I don't know, but you're going to go to college. Um, and I feel fortunate in that, you know, I was, I applied myself in school and I, I even got a job um, when I was 16 years old um, and I applied to scholarships and I ended up getting undergrad paid for. Uh, I got a scholarship for that, which was a first generation low income kind of based scholarship, yeah. um, which is a tremendous help, but, in the in the total cost of my education, drop in the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And I was gonna ask. So, so now we we're fortunate enough to be in a medical school that touts its diversity, and obviously, it's obviously one of the the most diverse medical schools in the U.S. You know, like mm-hmm. how important do you think that is? for not only medical education, but like moving forward in terms of like what we need the medical field to look like in the future. I think it's super important. It's actually one of the reasons why I went to this medical school. Um, I'm from Florida. This medical school is from New Mexico. I had never been to New Mexico, um, but when I was making my school's list and looking at the places that I would apply to, um, that mission statement starts with para la gente del futuro, you know, for the people in the future. Um, and that told me that this is a place, you know, along with the, the rest of the mission, which is to create culturally competent physicians um, and a diverse, diverse physician workforce, that told me that this is a place that would um, celebrate my diversity or, you know, celebrate people from different backgrounds, not just tolerate them. Right. Um, and I think that is super important moving forward because everybody, I mean, the demographics of the United States are going to continue, projected to continue. Uh, becoming diverse and it serves it does a disservice to the people um, that receive medical care to not have their identities reflected by those taking care of them right right I think I think you're right because if we look at the numbers like I I was telling you I think only about like 7% of the US physicians Mm -hmm. are are like Hispanic or from the Latinx community like only seven percent mm-hmm. of the U.S. physicians, and compared to like the pop- the population of the U.S. that's more his uh, it was Hispanic and Latinx, which is I think goes around twenty eight percent or so, and I think it's increasing as well. You know, and yeah. like I know for me as a black person, like having experience where I had a, a, a patient that was was mm-hmm. black as well, and that relationship, you know, because cultural identity and I, I don't is, is very very important in medicine. You know, like mm-hmm. when you're from the same culture, you tend to understand the patient a lot more. You know, mm-hmm. you understand why the patient has their their viewpoints and why they think the certain way they do things because you're from the same culture. And I don't know how I, I think 
it's it, it's probably different. I think for you too, as a, a Latina, I don't know if you've ever experienced have a, ever going to like a, a doctor's office and let's say you see a Hispanic doctor versus you see someone that's more white. I know that shouldn't matter, but I think it it really does. You know, having to mm. see from your own background, like it's... it makes it makes you feel like more welcome to some sense. Absolutely. I mean, I think even when you can speak to someone in their native language, like what's going on with them, there's a sense of ease there too, right? right? Like right. when I was on my general surgery rotation, um, the doctor that I was with, he's Peruvian, and a lot of his patients were, you know, spoke Spanish. And when he, you know, would walk into a room and he would see like that they were kind of just nodding their head and he would say like, you know, English, Spanish, like, like how do you want to be treated? Or, you know, how do you want to proceed? It, you could instantly see the relief in their faces because, you know, the, the let me just give you context. He's blue eyed. So he does not look <laughs> like he speaks Spanish. Um, right. So he starts his greeting. And then when, the, when he sees the patient kind of like just nodding on, um, starts talking to them in Spanish and you can see the relief on their faces. Um, and that's, I think, patient-centered care right there, you know, kind of like see, meeting them where people are at. Right. No, I think I think you're right though, because I I remember like, let's say like when I was when I was a scribe, and I used to work at a like this orthopedic hospital. They had like um, translators come in, mm-hmm. and I think compared to now when I'm like um, obviously rotating in El Paso, which about like half of the patient population we see at Hispanic, sometimes a room maybe more depending on what rotation you're doing. Like mm-hmm. when you're able to communicate, or when you see on um, the doctors here able to communicate in the patient's native language that mm-hmm. whole, the, the translators i think sometimes when you have a translator like a lot of things are missed you know in translation yes. with between, yes. like we're having that patient doctor relationship a lot is like missed in translation yes to the patient like in their own language it's like really important because some things you know how like whenever you, you're saying something in like a native tongue versus like you know how people like like when they want to speak. Okay, if English is not your first language, and you, you get frustrated, <laughs> you just de- like go like default to your native language because that's like it's a better way of expressing what you <laughs> you're feeling. You know. Yes, it happened to be just the other day in clinic. Um, we had a patient. I don't know. This I, this won't break it, but just a patient that said that their baby was snoring, um, and it turns out that the baby was snorting, like snort which is totally uh-huh. fine. Not necessarily like a three-day-old baby snoring. Right. Um, it, it was just because in, in her native tongue, which uh, was Hebrew, they just have one word for it. Right. Um, but right. it can completely affect, yeah, patient care. And actually, while we were talking, I thought of something else. Um, not just so much language. I mean, language is super important. And it's, you know, one of the things that you want to do with your doctors, connect with them and be, you know, have that like two-way communication. Language is important, but also just identity and culture being with uh being interrelated with medicine this is something that you brought up earlier i listened to a a podcast the other day um where they were talking about and i hope i don't butcher this but essentially a patient needed an eeg done um because this patient was having seizures but this patient had a hairstyle that didn't prevent that prevented them from you know getting the traditional kind of like cap put on them i don't remember if it was cornrows i don't remember what kind of hairstyle it was but essentially they were put in a place really really they were you know i don't want to get this done because this is woven into my head and they wanted to essentially cut it off her head 
And she was like, no, that's like, not, that's not going to happen. Um, so that there was a person on that team that was like, why is this the only thing that exists to make EEGs? And they subsequently went on to develop like a clip or something that you can put on the EEG probes and right. get it in there without having to cut off the, you know, the person's hair. And that is an example of just someone from that same identity being in the room advocating for that person saying like, or, you know, future people also saying, this is, you know, like this, this is the only thing that exists. Like, I feel like something else should, we should, you know, make something else. And it's as simple as a clip, but that's what happens when you have representation in the room and not just everybody should wear the cap. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're completely right. I think there's a lot of things where like people, like we need to respect like, people's cultures, people's belief. You know, I think like in doing so, we kind of also build that trust that sometimes tends to be lacking between like uh, the, the medical community, uh, community and other like, like cultural groups as well, you know, like mm-hmm. really that trust is important. And the, one of the best ways to do it is respecting someone's culture and belief, you know, like mm-hmm. I know, um, uh, this, I think I was retaining a family med and it's talking about how, like when we had this patient and she was having like a diarrhea and stuff, and instead mm-hmm. of taking the medication that she was obviously prescribed, um, uh, I think no, it was constipation, not diarrhea. Instead of taking the medication that was prescribed to her, she was like, no, I'm just going to go home and make this tonic that my grandma used to make, you know, and when, when we were back in like, what I had her, and like, we mix all this stuff together, like, mm-hmm. to help me. And those are the kind of things you have to respect, you know, because I mean, there's probably a reason why those traditions have been passed on for generation. Because whether we like it or not, like, most traditional medicine, they also have they have this value in like in world of modern modern medicine you know all absolutely traditions they have their value and it's important that we respect people with different traditions and actually sometimes i feel like it is important so that we kind of adopt it in a way you know like use it as a actually if it's not harmful to the patient use it as a, a way to help boost the patient's morale you know what i'm saying absolutely um there's many a home remedy um, that I don't understand how it works, but I've seen my family recommend to each other. And even now I'm like, that, that makes no sense. But you know, we, I still do it. (laughs) I still follow what what, what my aunt and whatever say. Um, And if it were up to me, anybody that would be, that would walk into my, my clinic would have, would get a little jar of Vicks vapor rub because Hispanics (laughs) love that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah, that's that. That's <laughs> I think, like, maybe, maybe it's just a placebo effect. I don't know what it is, but it does. It does seem to work, you know, for a lot of people. I, I don't, because you know, like, if we if we're tying this down to the whole um idea of like of of osteopathic medicine, where you have like the the, the body, mind, you know, and the the soul, maybe it's just a mind aspect where like if. They they have they've grown up with this certain belief and this certain cultural you know, and if if you are kind of going against their belief, it's there's still that conflict there you know. So allowing them to believe what they believe, and like I said, like as long as it's not harmful to them, mm-hmm. as long as no there's no physical harm, I don't think there's anything wrong with allowing someone their their, their belief system you know. Right. And obviously, there are also certain things that could be like like harmful and stuff. Like I don't know how prevalent this is in your community because I know, like at least for me, being African, like I'm from a very like 
my culture was very, very religious. And sometimes mm-hmm. to faults where, like, when some people might need, like, medical help or assistance, but instead of seeking medical help, they just go to the church. Mm. You, like, praying and praying and praying, but it's like, there, there are doctors there that could help you out with that issue. But <laughs> you're still in the church praying and praying and praying, and there's nothing wrong with praying, but, like, I don't know if it's something you see a lot in your community where people like chase like the the church, you know, and seeking yes. miracles and stuff instead of you know trying to go to the to to, to go see a doctor for your issues. <laughs> yes, yes, I definitely do. Um, the Hispanic community, a lot of Catholicism, especially in in South Florida where I'm from. Um, and religion is a big, big part of identity, but also culture. And yeah, um, at least my family, I did see, you know, we prayed about it, but also sought medical attention. Okay. If, if possible, you know, because another thing that is common with Hispanic um, populations is tend to be underinsured and stuff like that. Um, so within reason, within... Um, if we could take care of it at home, we would take care of it at home. But if we needed medical attention and it was serious, seek help and pray about it. You know, I, I think yeah, you're, you're, you're right. It's, 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 it's good if they actually try to seek it. I think that's one thing that uh, they, should, they should do a lot more. I think sometimes mm-hmm. that relationship is important. I think prayer too and having uh, like re- religion does have is you know, is part to play when it comes to patients health but mm-hmm. it's important for them to seek you know have you ever heard of the hispanic paradox oh uh, no <laughs> and i this is something that i learned of while i was in undergrad um and i took a public health class so it's been years i don't know if it's still a hispanic paradox or whatever um but essentially the paradox was that hispanic groups um tended to be or more likely to be uninsured or underinsured. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, they also tended to have better health. Um, and that was the paradox there. Like, you know, even though they don't have like medical care, they tend to be healthier. And right. there's, at least at the time when I was reading this, um, there seemed to be a thought that it was due to, could be some, some something to do with, you know, the, the, the food, right. um, but also, <clears throat> these social aspects like when mm-hmm. somebody gets sick in a hispanic family it's kind of like all hands on deck like you know we're, we're gonna like, either take up our you know pick up slack around the house and like this person's gonna you know bringing soup to them so this person's getting better um right. but that's when people get sick when they're not sick we tend to be also more communal and like together and building yeah yeah togetherness um that like i'm at a loss for words here the um it's not as individualistic, it's more communal. Um, and one thing that I, you know, it's reiterated and I learn every day is that people, humans are like social creatures and that social aspect is so important to health. Yeah, I think I think that is something that I never really knew or noticed mm-hmm. until you just spoke about it. Like the, the paradox, I didn't even know it was, a, was an actual thing, but that's very, very interesting in terms of how I talked about when someone in the Hispanic community is sick, it's all hands on deck, you know. I think mm-hmm. the perfect example is like when I was when I was 
it was anything that's really general surgery and stuff. I could tell just before I walked into a room to see a patient, I could tell if they're going to have family members there or not. Mm-hmm. Their name or like, you know, their, their background and stuff. And I think, like you said, being housed today, it's such a close-knit community and such a loving mm-hmm. community that everybody, like when someone is sick, they pray for you, they're always there for you. And I don't know if they have that as much when, like when it comes to more like or like more like white people, you know what I'm saying? Like they don't have that close knit community as much as most Hispanic people do. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you think? Why do you think that is? Why do you think they they're more close knit than? At least I think they're also one of the most close knit communities in terms of like yeah, like why do you think that is? Um. I mean, that's a very good question. <clears throat> I think it probably has to do with upbringing. Um, I, can, I can speak on my family and our experience um, in Cuba. Everybody kind of like lives together. Um, you don't really like buy a house. You kind of like build, build and then like you, the house gets passed down for generations and stuff like that. Right. Um, so for example, my aunt, my aunt lived on top of the house that my uncle built. So hold on, two sisters, and then one lived in the first floor, the other one lived on the second floor. So my aunts lived where I don't want on top of one another. So my cousins grew up together, living on top of one another, you know? Um, And that's just, and aside from like the proximity, there's also like, that is your cousin, that is your, you know, ex family member, like that is your people. Um, There's, from the moment that you're raised, like there's just like, communal like we're gonna make it through together like raised you know my cousins were raised together so my aunts raised them together so it's not just like your mom taking care of your like the kids it's like your sister you mean your mom's sister is also taking care of the kids it's like kind of like a uh takes a village kind of thing okay well, that 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 makes sense i think that's so yeah makes sense that's 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 really interesting though so i i don't know if um I think last time we spoke, I think you were chasing, uh, you wanted to be, like, do theology. I, I think it was one of your options. I'm not sure if you <laughs> changed your mind and, like, if you wanted to do something else. Oh, yes, Stanley. So, last time we talked, <laughs> um, I was considering urology. Right. Um, now, I am pretty dead set on becoming a radiologist. Okay. And I was going to ask, in terms of, like, for most medical field, like, it's imp- it's important to have, like, you know, mentors and people that walk mm-hmm. the path in front of you. Like, mm-hmm. do you know any uh, Latino, like, radiologists that you could talk to that could guide you, you know, on, like, are you... Yes. Okay. So, do I know that they exist? Yes. I follow some on Twitter. Are <laughs> they in, in my corner? Not necessarily, <laughs> and, that, and that's something that I'm working on. It's hard because, I mean, not only am I Hispanic, Latino, but also like we're doing, you know, D, doing a DO degree as opposed to an MD degree. So there's multiple layers, I guess, of minority within the medical community. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to find. So radiologists also don't come like a dime a dozen. Like there's not, you know, there's many there's probably, they'd probably like, train like a thousand or something like that a year. Right. Um, so 
to find a Hispanic radiologist and a DO has not been easy for me. I have found them. They do exist. Yeah. But in terms of in terms of making them my mentor, that is something that I'm actively pursuing. Well, I think I think that's uh, that that makes sense. I, 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 that's actually like interesting. I, I don't know what the percentage is for the amount of people that are like uh, Hispanic and uh, as well like in radiology. Like it's probably very very low. So mm-hmm. that's 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 very interesting. Your your hair like shattering like glass ceilings. <laughs> right, 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 right. And a, so, and a his, Hispanic do radiologist right. is probably like you know hard to find. Yeah, right. No, I think that that's really that's that's so cool. And uh, I, I think you you mentioned something about um the Hispanic population being one of the most like uninsured and underinsured group, right? Mm-hmm. I, what do you think it's like one of the main reasons as to why the it's that's so underinsured or uninsured? <laughs> um, so we live in a society that health insurance is tied to your place of business. Right. Um, you we have you know employer sponsored or employer whatever uh, based healthcare, and a lot of times the jobs that Hispanics do. Um, do not fall under these big uh, corporations or um, if they do, it's not, it's going to be like in a part-time or in a, in a position that, you know, wouldn't ensure like it's not going to be a full-time like managerial position. It would be something less. Right. So for example, my mom cleans houses, my dad sells cars. So they work for themselves. So they have no employer um, sponsored insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom and dad <clears throat> wanted to have to get insurance they would have to buy it from the private market and we can that's a whole other episode there <laughs> that's a whole another discussion yeah you're right yeah so i think a big part uh and that's not the only part but a big part of why the hispanic community is underinsured or uninsured a lot of the times is due to the fact that we have you know the system that we're working in yeah. I think you're right. And I was going to ask something though. Like, do you think if, let's say, we live in a perfect universe, or let's say, like, we had a universal healthcare system, like Canada does, mm-hmm. do you think more, there'll be more Hispanic people going to seek medical you know, advice and going to see doctors and stuff? Is that something I think would be, we would see a lot more? Do I think if we had universal healthcare that more people would seek care? Yeah, like more Latinos would seek care, yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I think at, at the very least checkups. Um, yeah, I think that is the hope, right? The hope is to have appropriate care, not overuse or underuse. Because what's happening right now is, you know, many are uninsured. So when they do show up, it's like already at a critical condition or something that's been, they've been ignoring or trying to like put off or it wasn't that serious or whatever. Now they're in the emergency room and whatever. Um, I think if we, you know, wave of the wand tomorrow, we had uh, universal health care more people would use it at first yes and then eventually it would kind of like come down or come to baseline or you know yeah no i i, I think yeah i just i just wanted to know if there's like any like assistance for most people in the latinx community in terms of like relationship because i know obviously like in the black community we have a very very strong oh yes with, i see what you're saying yeah with uh, yes yes community. Yeah, I don't know if that's present in 
Latina community and you got the same situation? I think it depends who you talk to. Okay. There are there are sentiments and there are people that, you know, have mistrust for uh for the medical system and that is for valid reasons. Um and I'm thinking specifically of my Puerto Rican brothers and sisters. Um, right. um but overall, at least in my family, like medicine is seen as like a noble profession. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that it's anything that a doctor says that is accepted at face value because <clears throat> there is still some like, okay, that's what they said, but like, we, we you know, we can treat this this way or, or whatever. Um, it is still not completely mistrusted. Okay. I guess that uh, that makes sense. So I think one it, final question. Are you going to answer something? No, I was just going to say it's complicated. I just I realized that my answer is like, Yes and no for no, the last no, I question. Think, I think sometimes like it it's 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 that simple and sometimes like it's we, we don't really understand stuff. But mm-hmm. one final question, I think from where you are right now, like you're a couple months to graduation, obviously there's still we have matching stuff that we still have to look forward to. I put that in quotation mark because it's one of the most frightening process that we're gonna be going through in a couple months time. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. like, obviously our step exam like what do you think if you had the the power to change that you would do in order to increase the number of um, Latina Hispanic doctors in the U.S.? Like, what process do you think if you had the power that you would change or steps you would take to increase that uh, diversity quota? Mm. So what would I change to get more Hispanic Latinos in medicine? Yes. Mm. Well, for one, I would make it less cost prohibitive, like the process itself just to get in the door is super expensive and super cost prohibitive. Um, That's one. Number two, I would also put Hispanic Latino people in positions of like visible positions of, I don't want to say power, but like if you see yourself reflected in a community, in an administration or in a faculty, um, then you are more likely to go there. Uh, and one of the problems that universities have is um, turnover or um, is turnover the right word? It's essentially like someone joins the faculty and then they leave. Yeah, they're, they're usually, they're, yeah. yeah. Turnover is the word. Right. They're usually like a, a, a minority group. Um, and if that environment is toxic or for any number of reasons that, you know, isn't keeping them there, they're going on to a better place <laughs> so i would put if if i had you know a magic wand or if i was trying to like solve this problem um aside from making it more accessible i would also make it so those people that want to join medicine have people that they can see and mentor them um ahead of them right well, i think i think that makes sense i think that would that mm-hmm. would go a long way in like increasing the the number of uh, Hispanics or Latinx in uh, medical community, and also not mm-hmm. just in medical community, in other professional community as well. You know, they have like the, the lawyers, engineers, and and other stuff. You know, right. I I think like it's it's been a really really awesome conversation. <laughs> like I said, I always enjoy talking to you. I kind of do mix your, your your Cuban coffee. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, you can come over anytime. You know, I right. always got got a couple of uh, coffees for you. All right. So it was really nice talking to you. Uh, I hope you you have the rest a good rest of uh, a year and like rotation and stuff. Thank you, Stanley. I hope the same for you. All right. Love you, buddy. All right, bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Becoming T.O. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Anyway, guys, have a great day.